Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Hello there, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv, back with returning guest, C.W. Marshall, also known as Toph. Toph joined me from UBC, which is always such a thrill. It is just over the water from where I live, Um, and we talked about theater. Just theater. I specifically asked Toph to come back to talk about this because I have had so many incredible questions from all of you, um, both on my Patreon really specifically and elsewhere, but just about the culture behind ancient Greek theater, the festivals, the actual, the ways in which these plays were performed, who funded them, why, what was the whole, like the actual real people aspects of this ancient entertainment the ancient tragedy but theater broadly we do talk about the comedians as well (laughs) aristophanes fine um but we had this was an incredible conversation oh my god i learned so much and it did inspire me uh to next summer we're gonna do a whole month on euripides like both some plays but also the person the culture him as a tragedian and his oh cannot wait. Anyway, that's for future time. Today is just about theater 
itself. So many fascinating intricacies and details about the culture of it. I want to try to say more because the conversation is just too good. Conversations, a peek behind the ancient scenes, the culture of theater with C.W. Marshall. I'm so thrilled to have you back for one, uh, but also just, yeah, Greek tragedy broadly. I've already talked outside of the episode about how obsessed I am with Euripides. Um, but I just, you know, I think something that that listeners don't often understand without the background of this is the the fuller context of Athenian tragedy, I should say, rather than Greek, but of, you know, what was kind of going on, the festivals where these were performed, the fact that there were so many tragedians whose work doesn't survive, um, you know, all of the the wins and losses and content or contests and sort of everything. So I eat that stuff up. <sighs> Good. That's why I have you. It's very exciting. Um, yeah. So, I mean, maybe starting with the festivals and maybe the, the, the creation of the plays themselves. So you mentioned funding. I'd love to hear more about sort of the, the logistical aspects of how how these things were created you know, for what, like, original kind of purpose? Is that enough of a prompt? <laughs> great. There we go. Well, it's, it's great to be here. Um, so the festivals, uh, one, one thing we know about Athenian tragedy is that it was performed at festivals. And uh, we know about the city Dionysia, and generally we tend to think that the city Dionysia was it, that when the tragedians were putting plays forward, they were putting them forward in groups of four, three tragedies with a satyr play. Sometimes people argue that maybe the satyr play wasn't always fourth, but I think it was always fourth. That the experience of watching tragedy at the Dionysia, which was this festival that was held roughly in March, um, was to see all four of these plays as a unit. They might not have been narratively connected, but if they weren't narratively connected, they could have been thematically connected. We know that Euripides' plays in 415 were all linked with the Trojan War. But I also think that sometimes they were uh, intertextually connected, mm -hmm. that if Cyclops was performed as the satyr play in 408 with Orestes, for example, if you look at the plays that they're alluding to, both Orestes and Cyclops are engaging with Eurystia. Both of them are engaging with Hecuba. Both of them are engaging with the same set of sort of paratexts. And so I think at different times, the playwrights try different ways of connecting their plays up. But that's just one festival. And the bit that uh, starts to be really fun to think about is when we realize that the playwrights put on plays at other festivals too. Mm -hmm. In addition to the March festival of the Dionysia, there was a festival in January, and that's the Dionysia. Uh, sorry, the Lanaya, um, and the Lanaya festival. Uh, we don't. We're not completely confident. We know where it was staged. We can talk about theater spaces later if you want. But the Lanaya, we tend to think of as a comic festival because we know we've got plays of Aristophanes that were performed at the Lanaya. The Frogs was performed at the Lanaya. The Acarnians was performed at the Lanaya. 
But there was also a tragic competition at the Linnaea. Um, and it appears, based on epigraphic records that survive, that there would only be two competitors and that they'd put forward a pair of tragedies. Mm-hmm. So no satyr plays, but just two tragedies back to back. And that that was what was voted on for the tragic competition at the Linnaea. The Linnaea competition started probably in the 440s. So the Dionysia had been uh, going full tilt for 50, 60 years at this point. We've got this festival, but they wanted to have more theater in their lives over the course of the year. And so they they set up this other competition. And while our records tend to foreground the comedies, just because we've got plays by Aristophanes and, and he's got a lot of support materials behind him, um, we know that there was a tragic competition at the Linnea too. So if we start thinking about the number of tragedies that are getting performed in a year, we've got three tragedies from three competitors. That's nine at the Dionysia and two by two at the uh, Linnea. So 13 new tragedies every year. Is four in 13 of the tragedies that survive from us Linnea plays? It might not be that high, but I think there's good reason to think that maybe some of the tragedies that we've got aren't Dionysia plays at all. Yeah. And that some of them were performed at the Linnea or maybe at another festival because there were also local Dionysia festivals also earlier in the year. Now, these are sometimes called rural Dionysia. Sometimes they're called deem Dionysia. Athens was divided into 139 or whatever deems, villages or neighborhoods, and some of them had theater spaces. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about individual theater spaces if you want, but uh, if you ever go to Attica and you're heading down south to the Temple of Sunion, um, on the coast, really close to there, is the Dean Theater of Thoracos. Mm. And Thoracos oh, is... Someone it, told it, me about this. Yes. Yeah, I no, have you've got to go. It's amazing. I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Thoracos, uh, it's just, you know, on the side of the road. Uh, sometimes the gate's uh, just ajar. Sometimes it's a little person sitting in a house. But you go in. <laughs> Love Greece and for that. And there's... But here's a fifth century theater space for us. It's one of these deem theater spaces. And it was a theater space that was probably used by Thoracos and the neighboring deems as well for their Dionysia. They may mm-hmm. have pooled together, but we've got inscriptional records saying that there were dramatic contests there too. We don't know all the workings of them. But if there's, let's say, a dozen different deem festivals scattered around Attica too during this uh, local Dionysia celebration or rural Dionysia celebration, that adds even more plays. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about Thoracos just for a sec because it's, yeah. it's, it's right by uh, the entry to the Lorian Silver Mines. Um, oh. It's uh, this uh, long sort of rectangular orchestra. Uh, there's no, the, the, the grounds drops off quickly. So there's barely room to set up a, a stage building. And if you do set up a stage building, that makes the uh, orchestra even more narrow. But it's not this gorgeous, perfect circle or or whatever we might imagine. It's just the local countryside. And this was the space that they had to build a theater. And they built it. It was preserved. It's being excavated. And, and it's a great place to visit just for breaking away from the assumptions that we get when we just look at the theater of Dionysus or we yeah. just look at Epidavros. 
Yeah. I have, okay. So many quick things based yeah. on what you've said. One, so I remember Thoracost was mentioned by um, Hannah Parker came on my show. She does TikToks, amazing TikToks about the ancient world. And and she mentioned it because she had just been there. And is it like, it's oddly shaped, right? Because of what you're talking about, how it was just like they just used what they had and created what they could. So so it's it's quite unique, is it? it it's very, it, it's almost like a, a J that's on its side. Huh. So there's a, a, a long row of seats that sort of curve over on one side and one side only. Um, there's room for a temple on the other side, uh, but uh, but it's it's not even symmetrical. Interesting. And, and yet it was a site of theater competitions. Yeah. And we've got these great uh, records, that just scattered hints throughout antiquity. But for example, um, I think it's Elian writing in Rome. He's got this anecdote of Socrates, famous Socrates, going to the Piraeus whenever Euripides puts on a play there. Good. It's a weird thing to invent. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to make that up. But... It suggests that, at least in Elian's day, it would be assumed that one of the big three, Euripides, would be regularly, at least more than once, putting on plays at this one particular Dean festival. Um, and the, there's another theater in the Piraeus. And, mm-hmm. and, but, but that Socrates, the point of the anecdote is that Socrates was a big Euripides fan and he's going to walk all the way down to the harbor in order to see a Euripides play. It's not weird that Euripides is putting on a play there. That has to be presumed for mm-hmm. the story to be interesting. So, again, do we have records of Euripides actually performing there? No, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if all of the playwrights were occasionally, maybe they've only got one or two plays that they've written in that year that they want to put on that aren't working as a tetralogy, um, that aren't Dionysia plays that someone else got selected for the Dionysia. So they've got, they're going to put two of the plays on at the Lanaya, or maybe they just get paid really, really well to go down to the Piraeus. (laughs) But I think we need to break free of this assumption that, you know, you're trying out material in the Catskills before you bring it to the big city or that it's an encore performance. If you win, you get to tour the provinces. I think neither of those is as likely as just these were opportunities to put on plays and everyone is putting on plays all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, if you think about how many we know each playwright had, like obviously most of them don't survive, but we know so many. Like it seems that logistically th- this seems like something that, yeah, you'd, you'd need more opportunity than just the Dionysia because if there's we only know of the plays of these three well of course we know about more but like you know we think of these three and the the volume that they had but they weren't always performing every year they didn't always get in you know and so yeah like and and so before i forget to ask this because also apologies if i'm misremembering but you came on my show to talk about the helen which is <sighs> stuck with me Such forever <laughs> it's incredible um i i, I just started talking about Iphigenia among the Taurians and and the introduction there's some note about it being like often kind of connected with the Helen in in sort of theme and I'm like oh I'm so excited um but did you argue that that the Helen and Andromache could have been Lanaya plays or am I misremembering no you're not you, uh, Andromeda sorry yeah, um, thank you I had thought I was going to be arguing that Helen and Andromeda were both Lanaya plays, yeah. and that, that was a doublet. Um, that when I started writing my book on Helen, that's what I thought I was going to be arguing. 
Unfortunately, I talked myself out of that particular okay. example. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other Linnea plays in amongst uh, the plays that survive. Yeah. And it's not that it's impossible in the case of Helen and Andromeda. Um, I just think the balance of probabilities in that case argues against it. Interesting. But I think being open to that possibility yeah. is uh, so, something that I want to be and I, and I want to recognize the full performance calendar that sometimes you want to open a play in Chicago rather than New York for various reasons. That yeah. sometimes you want to uh, target a particular audience and that particular audience is, is going to be found somewhere else. Yeah. I think as Canadians, we can identify with it. <laughs> Just a little bit, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I say so having there's... been wished th- happy Thanksgiving multiple times this week. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we're talking about the big playwrights putting on plays at uh, these uh, deem level festivals. Mm-hmm. We actually have a really cool inscription and we don't know what the inscription means, but I think I can, I can tell you <laughs> the whole details of the inscription. It was, um, I think it was found in 1954. It's the base for a bronze statue that was found in a deem called Anagyrus. The deem is on the coast. Uh, you can see the monument itself or the base itself in the Epigraphic Museum in Athens, which is just sort of around the side of the big National Archaeological Museum. Why didn't I know I that e- was a thing? Now I'm mad at myself, but good to know. Okay. Good, good to know. <laughs> I don't use the phrase as exciting as the Epigraphic Museum in Athens often, but, <laughs> but I find it thrilling. Um, but anyway, so in there, there's this monument that was set up by the Koregos, the producer. Mm-hmm. And so the Koregos has won. And what he gets to do as a victor is set up a statue to me. Look how awesome I am. <laughs> and what the, stat- what, what the inscription says is Socrates dedicated this. Euripides was the didaskalos. Didaskalos is our word for director. It doesn't say Euripides was the playwright. Huh. And then it lists the tragedians uh tragoidoi and then it gives 14 names um and so there's a melitas there's an emporion there's a lysias there's a son son is a really rare name in greek it's uh s-o-n um yeah but uh we know of a son from anagyrus uh from another inscription and so these are the local boys who were in a chorus for a tragedy that Euripides directed, and that this guy Socrates, not the famous Socrates, but some other Socrates, <laughs> and if it wasn't some other Socrates, it was that other Socrates' grandson. So uh, <laughs> there, there's a couple of candidates on who the Socrates could be. Love it. Um, but Socrates is the, is the producer, we would say. Euripides was the director, and here are 14 choristers, and that's all it says. So look what we can get from this information. First off, no mention of what festival it is. If you're looking at the statue, you can work it out or you know. That's not what's important. Yeah. What's important is that we won. What were the plays? Not important. (laughs) (laughs) We don't need to commemorate the playwright at all. And in fact, Euripides isn't commemorated as a playwright. Yeah. He's commemorated as Didaskalos. He's a director. In with the Oscars, we care more about the best director than the best adapted screenplay. Yeah. But we, but here, in terms of the dedications, it's not the poet, the adapted screenplay. It's 
the director that is being commemorated. Um, and we can make a little aside here if we want. We know in the case of some comedies that Aristophanes, for example, doesn't direct all his own plays. Mm. And he gets other people who are specialists. You get, you know, someone who understands this type of comedy to direct this type of a play. Yeah. Or maybe when Aristophanes is acting in his plays, he gets another director. We don't know. But anyway, so we know the Kragos, we know the director, we know 14 tragedians. We don't know the festival. We don't know the plays that won. We don't know the actors. The actors aren't being identified on this. They're being paid. They're separate from this. The Kragos, the producer, is only bragging about the stuff that he put forward. Right. And so all sorts of information we would want to have, yeah. we need to guess at, but it shows us what was important, at least from the production side. Yeah. That if you win, win Best Picture, you, you know, you always, again, thinking of the Oscars, you know, the crowd of people who come up for Best Picture, you don't know who those people are. Sometimes there's an actor there or two, but, but the people that you're seeing are the people backstage or the people who have roles that don't make it onto the screen. So uh, is this evidence that there was a dramatic contest at Anagyrus? Maybe. Um, And Benjamin Millis says that this is evidence that Euripides was competing, not early in his career, but late in his career uh, with a one-off play at Anagyrus and that he wins. Yeah. It, and maybe it's kept coming in and, and, you know, maybe it's a little unfair if Euripides comes in at age 65, <laughs> having won at the Dionysia at least a couple of times. But, you know. Yeah. I mean, so maybe I like go. this idea of the of the Oscars because it's it's a great way to kind of connect it. Like thinking of like Scorsese jumping in with like a bunch of up and coming directors. And you're like, well, that's not totally fair, I guess. Like, it, yeah. Or when Scorsese does the Netflix film. Yeah, right? yes, absolutely. <laughs> like it, 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 that's exactly that's exactly right. So did all the choristers come from the same dean? Is that why they're not given their father's names and not given their dean associations? Um, if there were 15 choristers, where's the 15th? Some people have suggested that he was a professional. And so we don't, you know, if we're paying him or he's the chorus leader and if we're, if we're paying him, he doesn't get his name written down, but it's also possible. He just came from another deem and we don't care about him as much and that we're only celebrating the local boys. It's also possible that this is celebrating a victory at the Dionysia. Yeah. But where we want to brag about it is in our hometown. Yeah. So we know that like uh, Panathenaic, no, I'm sorry, I've, I've uh, sorry, Dithyrambic victories mm. get celebrated in the city. If you're co- representing your tribe, you set up your monument for the Dithyramb close to the theater of Dionysus. But maybe for dramas, you don't. Mm-hmm. Maybe for dramas, you brag about winning at the big festival by setting up a uh, a statue to yourself yeah. um, in in your hometown because that's where people are going to go. Oh yeah, no, he's one of ours. Yeah, or maybe this guy felt like he grew up a loser and he just really specifically <laughs> wanted to like celebrate himself and like maybe it wasn't even a tradition. It was just like him being like, "Nah, I'm gonna make them know." <laughs> like... And and I'll say the fragmentary nature of the evidence means we can't tell between those. Yeah. But that's exactly right. So <laughs> so thinking about what the producer gets out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the producer gets that as their payoff. If they win, they get to set up a 
statue. And that's true whether they're at the Dionysia, whether they're at the Lanaya, or whether they're at a local Dionysia. Mm-hmm. But I think recognizing the possibility that our playwrights, particularly Sophocles and Euripides, uh, once there are more and more contests in the second half of the fifth century, uh, with the Lanaya starting, you know, maybe 442, give or take three or four years. Um, we've got we, we've got this increasingly busy theater calendar mm-hmm. and they're finding opportunities. They're not always going to be at the Dionysia. And, you know, we happily accept that for the comedians already. We know the comedians split their time. We know the comedians found other directors. Maybe it was more common than we want to think for tragedy as well. I mean, it makes perfect sense if you think about it in terms of just like general human nature, you know, like, you know, even writers and stuff like you're going to write a big novel, but that doesn't mean you're not going to like write an article here and there. Like people need to make money. You know, the idea that that these playwrights would only produce something once a year as as their livelihood seems like kind of unlikely. But also uh, sometimes you just don't get the publisher that you want or you might not be selected for the festival and and you want to find alternatives. Mm -hmm. Got to (laughs) self-publish. So just start putting on plays in the in in, in the agora and yeah. see what happens. But I but I, but I like thinking in terms of of what these roles are. So if the Karegos gets that as their reward, um, we know that the Karegos sort of gets drafted into this as part of the Athenian tax system. Hmm. Um, they are performing a public service by paying for a chorus. They are they is a choregia, and this is the way elite Athenians show off their wealth either by sponsoring a chorus or by sponsoring a trireme. Those are the two <laughs> major ones. The two. They're so different. That's great. And there are some boys who will want to support the military and some who will want to support the arts. I think that's yeah. always been the case. <laughs> This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, 
Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. But you're allowed to volunteer if you want, right? Uh, we we think Pericles volunteered in 472 uh, to produce Aeschylus's Persians and oh. that tetralogy. But you know, here he is, a young rich guy. This is the way he's making his introduction to himself. He sees you know a likely winner, and he, him in his twenties, he says, "Look, I'll I'll be the Karagos for this production." And because it wins, he gets cultural capital. Yeah, it benefited uh, him in the end. Yeah, <laughs> he, he, he did all right. Yeah, he did yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, young Pericles. Yeah. Um, so, so thinking about that in terms of the Athenian tax system, thinking in terms of uh, whether you are conscripted to pay a corrigia, and whether you're trying to go cheap, or whether you uh, fully embrace being selected. Uh, and 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 you shell out in order to have a better chance at winnings means that so much of what happens in the production is what the director, the didaskalos, can get out of the koregos. And I imagine that there's always this negotiation between Euripides as director and saying, "Look, I want a second set of costumes." 
Yeah. They've come on as hunters. Now they're going to come on as maidens. It's going to blow their mind. <laughs> and the Caragos is going, well, you know, can we go cheap on the costumes? No, we can't go cheap. <laughs> you know, and, but, but those sort of no- negotiations seem to be, well, endemic in theater that I've been part of. Yeah. Um, and, and it's worth thinking about what, you know, what, who pays for what. Yeah. And there's some indications, you know, like who pays for uh, the chorus. The chorus is paid for by the Karegos. Um, and that includes the rehearsal time. We've got this, uh, this essentially a wrongful death lawsuit. Um, is it okay to do more legal things? I know this. Yeah. No, all of this is great. <laughs> so Antiphone um, uh, is uh, a hired speechwriter who um, has written uh, one side of a law court speech for uh, a case where a boy chorister has died. So this isn't for uh, a play, but it's for a dithyram. But a boy has been, you know, basically sent away to boarding school for several months to practice singing in this boy's choir. He had a sore throat. He was given something to gargle with, and he dies oh as God. a result. So who is responsible? Is nobody responsible? Is the boy responsible? Is the guy who gave him the gargle responsible? Is the guy who hired that guy responsible? Or is the Karegos who hired the guy who hired the guy who gave him the gargle responsible? And where do we assign legal responsibility for this very unfortunate death of a small child who was just trying to sing better? That speech tells us so much about the rehearsal process for chorister, mm-hmm. just because it's dealing with the in and out a dithyrambic chorister. But still, you know, we've got these boys who are going off, leaving their homes for extended periods of time to live on somebody's rich estate, to be trained by professionals in order to sing, so that their dean or their tribe will have a chance to win the dithyrambic competition. And so, again, we can look at you know, th- these these speeches don't answer questions, but they raise all sorts of exciting questions yeah. for us. And so uh, we that speech gives us some indications of what the course, what the Karegos pays for in terms of the course. He also pays for costumes. Um, and so if we want fancy costumes, if we want lots of extras, if uh, in Helen, when the king shows up, maybe he's riding horses, they're returning victorious from the hunt. How elaborate is the hunt scene? They're only on stage for you know, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. We don't want to keep all those animals on stage in case things go wrong. But for that brief entry of the king, how magnificent can we make it for how cheap? And I'm sure, again, there's a tension there that the Didascalos and the Karegos were negotiating so that when Theoclemenus comes on in Helen, it can be a spectacular entry without having unexpected comic side effects. Yeah. That's so interesting. I, I, I want to know everything. (laughs) (laughs) Do we? So do I. God. I mean, you know, you were, when you're talking about it earlier, the, the, um, the monument that was set up um yeah it's just i i absolutely love the mysteries involved like the fact that you know he didn't didn't care what the play was like you know this this idea that like 
the stuff that we so desperately want to know we just never will because they didn't care and that's so fascinating like obviously it's infuriating too but it's it's so infuriating too but again we can re- we can read what certain big studios are doing in terms of releasing or not releasing their films things that have been in the news recently in terms of this. it's it's not the content that the studio cares about they they care about the profit yeah. the Kuregos, in some cases is going to care about you know do i win what what's the play that's going to win not what's the play that's going to make the greatest artistic statement or yeah. the one that's going to be entering into the mythographic tradition because <laughs> uh, because that's not something that they're they're framing their thoughts in yeah yeah it's just so interesting um do we know any kind of like do we have any kind of actual proof examples of like of a play that say got better funding that that had good costumes like any of those details there there's some uh jokes in aristophanes Mm, that we can interpret that way so for example uh in frogs uh the the chorus has two identities first they're frogs and then they uh, are the initiates, the Eleusinian initiates. Right. Um, there's been some discussion as to whether there are singing and dancing frogs in a play called Frogs. I think there are. <laughs> if there are frogs in Frogs, uh, by which I mean there are people that we see singing and dancing on in the orchestra, even though Dionysus doesn't see them, and the comic potential there, I think, is is clear. Later on, when the chorus return and they're in torn initiate robes, we've got a joke that that's all the Koregos could afford. <laughs> so some people, without a sense of humor, might, uh, <laughs> say, ah, clearly the frogs didn't appear earlier because the Koregos is poor. Or, though just as plausibly, and I would have said more plausibly, we've just seen elaborate singing flippers and, yeah. and frog costumes, <laughs> and this is a bonus costume for the rest of the play. And what, these old things? <laughs> and and all of a sudden, we get the joke that, of course, the Karegos is shelling out, and the playwright has written into the script that the Karegos is shelling out. You're not going to insult your own Karegos if you're trying to win a prize. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that seems most likely is that, like, the joke is that the frogs were so elaborate. That, exactly. Like, oh, well, it's like he prioritized the frogs, and rightly so, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, um, okay, uh, this might be just, like, a total leap, but it's the first thing I thought of my my listeners. Like, gosh, I'm being funny, and I don't even know it. Um, I, my listeners have asked, like, more about, you know, I, I've talked briefly about things like the, you know, the the crane, which I'm going to forget what its actual name was. The mechane, yeah. They, oh my god, it's so easy. Like, duh. Um, <laughs> like where we get the word machine. God. Um, the it, so something like that is that something that's sort of always going to go along with plays, or does that depend on the funding? Like, oh, I see. This is that's a great, great question because. Um, Here's what we know about the mechane. Um, so, you know, the crane can swing on people uh, either for flying or bring a god on at the end. Mm-hmm. Or a dragon-drawn um, chariot with dead children. With, for, for Medea. <laughs> Interestingly, that's the one that has the biggest uh, load that needs to be carried mm-hmm. of the extant plays. It's also the earliest. Of, mm. So so I, I think, you know, they... they they had they were a little too ambitious when they were doing that one and they scaled it back afterwards 
Interesting. But, uh, but so if we we were just talking about what the Karagos pays for, mm-hmm. does the Karagos pay for Ukraine? And I think he doesn't. Mm-hmm. They're all he's, right? But of course, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I think he doesn't. I think that if we've got a Mechene, that is, you know, we're setting up a crane, it's being attached to the Skene in order to be solid. That is an expense of the festival. Mm-hmm. And if the crane is available in one production, it's available to everyone in that production or in, in, in that festival. Yeah. Whether, not just to Euripides. So now that that's just sort of a common sense thing in that it has to be attached to the Skene that everybody is using. Yeah. But also uh, there's reference in Aristophanes at one point in peace, we call it the Mechane Poyas, the crane worker. <laughs> um, but the, his name is Derek. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The, but the crane worker, Mechanepoyas, is, um, is is being given instructions. Is he part of the production team, or is he part of, let's say, the the theater building in house staff? Yeah. And I think he's the latter. I think the Mechanepoyas is, you know, you're not. How, how many times do you have to rehearse in? The theater itself. Mm. We don't know of anyone rehearsing in the theater itself. Mm. You don't want to give away surprises and things like that. Yeah, this. it's totally open. <laughs> but they do have the the festival has someone who works the crane, and if you want the crane as part of your production, you let the archon know at the beginning of the year. You then tell everybody who's competing that year. Oh, there's a crane. Did they build a crane every festival? They may, maybe did. Maybe it was a default at the Dionysia that there was a crane every year. Maybe it was just every two years. And maybe that might be a reason you didn't put in one year because you've got a spectacular crane ending that you want. And they're, they're just not shelling out for a crane this year. But one observation that was made, and it was made in, uh, I guess, the late 80s or early 90s um, by an Aristophanes scholar. Uh, Rousseau identified that for Aristophanes, all the plays that use the Mechene were Dionysia plays, and that none of the Lenaia plays use the Mechene. Mm. And that was, I'll say, sort of independent of the flipping of the two plays from 411, the Thesmophoria Agisai and the Lysistrata. Mm. Thesmo needs a crane, and now it's generally accepted that that is a Dionysia play, the sister that doesn't need the Mekane, it's now generally accepted to be a Lenaya play. Mm. That reversal of festivals for those two plays uh, in the scholarship was made completely independent of the issue of the crane. Mm. That, that, that wasn't being factored in. So that provides a little extra confirmation for Rousseau's hypothesis. Um, but if Rousseau is right, Lenaya plays don't have the crane. Mm-hmm probably the rural Dionysia or the local Dionysia don't have the crane. Yeah. But that at least sometimes at the Dionysia, you do have the Mechene. Yeah. And and I think uh, that also makes sense in terms of who's paying for it, that it's not a Karagos expense, it's a festival expense, and so a city or archon expense, that it's something that is brought forward at one festival, but not at every festival, and 
typically not at the Lanaya or at the local festivals. Yeah, it makes sense that it would be like the big budget festival, right? Like the the city Dionysia is is the biggest one. It is one with the most plays performed. It is one with the highest budget. Like exactly. Yeah, it just makes sense. I mean, because also the you know, I think I've I've sort of briefly talked about it in other episodes of the the Dionysia was a big production even beyond the productions right like it was there was a whole procession through the city and it was like a big city thing more even than just a tragic festival right like there was there was more going on around it is that right so yeah this is one of the things uh that uh sort of the focus on social history that got introduced to scholarship in the late 80s early 90s sort of introduced was seeing uh, the Dionysia as an expression of Athenian civic identity. Mm. I think we're now moving more to uh, an understanding of tragedy as being a, a Mediterranean-wide cultural export, and and we see it arriving in different poles and different places at different times. Uh, and you know, there's a focus now on tragedy in Sicily, tragedy on the Black Sea, mm. all these things. But uh, but when when scholarship was focused particularly on understanding the social history of Athens. Um, there was some great work done that, again, pulls together disparate accounts that talk about things that are happening outside of the competition. So I can sort of run through yeah. some of those at least uh, really quickly. Whether these happened every year, not all of them did. So we've got three tragedians, each competing with a tetralogy on three separate days. It looks like we've got five comic playwrights, mm. though uh, it has been argued that during the Peloponnesian War, sometimes there were only three uh, comic playwrights, that there was a reduction. Mm -hmm. uh, we can talk about whether that makes sense or not. I, there's reasons to like that idea. I mean, it make, seems to make sense just in terms of like money, just the basics of well, also, who, who are the actors? Right. Oh, gosh. How, yeah. how, how, many, how many comic actors do you have kicking around town? Yeah. Are there really that many more uh, goofy actors than serious actors? And, and, and that, for me, is, is, is where the numbers start multiplying. But, yeah. but you know, do, do you have the resources to adequately fund five different comedies at two different festivals throughout? Late fifth century, and it'd be great if you did. I like mm -hmm. comedy, but uh, but there's reasons to think it could be reduced to mm -hmm. three in some cases. Um, you also have we've talked about the dithyrams. So each of the ten tribes puts forward two choruses of 50, 50 men and fifty boys. Each of those tri and so each of those is a separate choregia. Each has a different choregos, um, but. The uh, dithyrambic contests are the singing uh, these narrative songs, but uh, were they mimetic? Were they always mimetic or sometimes in terms of people taking individual roles or are they telling stories? We've got hints of these things. We can look at a couple of poems of Achilles to look at examples of dithyrams, but I, I wouldn't feel comfortable fully generalizing as to what the content of the of all the dithyrams always was. But again, this competitive context, in addition to the plays competing, both the tragic competition and the comic competition, there's the boys' dithyrams and the men's dithyrams all competing. 
There's a preview. This seems to have happened every year, at least uh, once, uh, certainly from the 440s on, um, at the Odeon. So the Odeon is this big building that's set up as part of the uh, Periclean building program. It's a square building that sort of is right at budding the theater and even cutting into the wedge mm-hmm. of where the audience sit. Um, it's it's a there's lots of pillars inside, so the sight lines aren't great. But it mm-hmm. was in that building that the Proagone took place, which seems to have been sort of like a preview. These might have been trailers for the <laughs> dramatic festivals that were to come. But we've got a story, for example, of uh, when Euripides dies. Uh, and Sophocles is competing in his old age that he brings his actors out in mourning gear. Mm. So, so I think that took place at this proagone. That this is the first time we're seeing um, the playwright, the didaskalos, the director, the actors. That's the time to show mourning for your fallen colleague. Mm-hmm. Because boy, does that get the sympathy votes then? Mm-hmm. Oh, how respectful! Yeah. Applaud, <laughs> applaud, and and it shows that he's honoring Euripides, <clears throat> but it's not something that's happening during the plays or is on the competition day itself. Right. This is making the public statement for a guy you've been competing with for fifty years, right? Like they're they're genuine. I'm not trying to reduce the genuineness of his feeling for the loss of Euripides and the respect that he had for his fellow competitor. Mm-hmm. But there's a place to do that. And I think the place is in this Proagone. Mm-hmm. We actually know Aristophanes wrote a play called Proagone um, that was produced in 422. Wouldn't it be great to have that? But yeah. just imagine the metatheatrical jokes that were going on <laughs> yeah. about the event that people had just seen three days earlier. Yeah, And this is what uh the the play seems to be about so all those things happen more or less every year the other sort of cultural activities are it's harder to quantify how frequent they are but they could parade out the orphans that the city is paying paying for and so you bring all the orphans into the orchestra and then you get to clap for your city uh and, and the, the the rearing of young people. Really? That, do you do that every year? Do you, it's just occasionally when the Archon wants to make a particular statement, you bring out the tribute. So again, the Athenian Empire is based on tribute from the polis, particularly in the islands. Yeah. Um, and we've got tribute lists. We know roughly how much it was. I don't know the numbers at the top of my head. Yeah. But uh, I once sort of uh, did a back-of-the-envelope calculation that if you uh, allowed one square meter in a uh, 25-meter-wide orchestra that was roughly circular, you would have a talent for every square meter. So just filling up, even symbolically. Just imagine, you know, look at the wealth that Athens has inherited. Plunk, plunk. Plunk, and you put down these bags one beside each other per square meter. <laughs> fill, you know, however long that procedure takes place, that that is a huge political message yeah. that that is sending. There are other uh, 
ways that we can mark Athenian civic identity too. Um, but that gives an idea of some of the things that maybe occurred, but, but it's like the entire festival is a cultural performance mm-hmm. in addition to the individual entries in each of the competitions. And of course, at other, in other cities, at other festivals, you have different types of competition. You might have music competitions uh, where Kitheroads, I think there's a Kitheroad competition at Delphi. Um, but, but again, what gets celebrated? What are the events that we care about? Different events get cared about at the Panathenaea. Mm-hmm. It's not a dramatic festival, but there we have athletic contests and we have musical contests there too. So, uh, so, so thinking about the festival life and the cultural life of Athens and seeing the place of any individual play, any individual play in that, um, messages are being built that are completely separate from the content of the plays. Yeah. And that's not to denigrate or say the content of the plays is unimportant, but it makes its meaning in different ways. Mm-hmm. And some plays do get exported. Um, and some of them seem to get exported fairly quickly. Mm. Uh, when we look at the comic vases from South Italy, the plays that we've been able to identify on the comic vases of South Italy aren't, again, these uh, pan-Hellenic comedies. They're really Athena-centric ones. Mm. They're ones that are drilling down. So, you know, either Thesmophoriadzusai of Aristophanes or Eupolis's Deems, where... Uh, the chorus is made up of maybe individuated neighborhoods in Athens. Wow, and that you makes think it to that Italy. <laughs> you, you, well, this is it. You'd think that that was local interest only. Yeah. But what the cities in Magna Graecia are wanting to see is the stuff that's resonating with the Athenians. Yeah. And so we see that you know those plays have an afterlife. Tragedies have an afterlife too, and. Again, we, we talked about Helen and Andromeda. Mm-hmm. Andromeda certainly enters into the subsequent performance repertoire. Mm. Helen seems not to. Helen doesn't Rude. make it into the... But but Andromeda was a great <laughs> play. But again, they're, they're entering into the performance repertoire separate from their original context yeah. as a pair of plays or as a tetralogy. Individual plays get exported and people cared about seeing Andromeda or Perseus fall in love at first sight with Andromeda. And it was that romantic story that captured the imagination of the painters who are painting South Italian vases in the fourth century that capture, you know, this, there's anecdotes from the Roman empire um, about, you know, people touring productions of Andromeda. Andromeda mm-hmm. we know continued to be performed at least in the Roman East. Uh, but, in being performed, um, you know, that is, you know, that is laying, it is cementing its position in the canon at the expense of other plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when, you know, when, when the globe puts on Hamlet, when the original globe put on Hamlet, what were the other plays that other playwrights put on that year? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll say nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> because that one, play has sort of displaced the others in in the cultural memory or Lear or whatever it is mm-hmm. um, but then again maybe because you know a play didn't have quite the cachet it had originally because it made it into the first folio say 
that mm-hmm. might give it a prominence that it wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so it still enters into the performance canon just a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But thinking about, uh, well, recognizing that there's a narrowing of all the plays that get performed in subsequent performance, some of them are being used educationally. Some are being you know, taught in schools. They're the Macbeth you read in grade nine or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Some are entering into the performance life. Mm-hmm. And Iphigenia Among the Taurians is one of those that we know keeps being performed. Mm. Andromeda by Euripides is one we know keeps being performed through the Hellenistic period, through the fourth century, through yeah. the Hellenistic period into the Roman period. And not long the, enough for us to have it. <laughs> it came close though. Oh. That's so interesting that that one so specifically we know about its lasting nature and then yet still it is a lost play. Like I think that's such a great example of how we still like, it doesn't matter how popular it was during certain time periods. Like sometimes it just won't make it to us. Well, Eupolis's Deems is a comedy like that, too. Mm. Um, We've got three pages. It was on a codex in Cairo in the 5th or 6th century CE. I don't remember which. But but it made it into a book Mm -hmm. with Menander. Mm. And, And, you know, here we are, late antiquity, almost on the verge of of getting into the manuscript tradition. Mm -hmm. And Menander and Eupolis's Deems doesn't make it. Yeah. But but we've got this one fragment. Well, it's it's a pretty extensive fragment. It's three pages of this codex from Deems, which is the play that we know was performed in South Italy yeah. in the fourth century. We can see it had a lasting impact. It was available to uh, you know to to authors like Lucian um, in the in the second century CE mm. when they are looking back at attic drama they're looking to plays like frogs to plays like deems mm-hmm. in terms of their comic inspiration and so deems is another one that almost made it mm-hmm. oh, it's so interesting This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. I just am so obsessed with the idea of of just all of the the different things that had to happen for us to have things have all of these surviving bits and pieces so hearing about these specific ones we know were so popular and yet we don't have them. Just so fascinating. So uh, I, I um, the, the the story that we have for Andromeda. Mm. Well, first off, and Andromeda is the play that Euripi that that Dionysus is reading in Frogs. Right. Uh, that's what gives him the yearning for Euripides. Is the yearning felt by Perseus falling in love? And so, at the end of the fifth century, Andromeda is already being held up as this play for longing. We know that there's an anecdote about uh, it being a scene being performed um, by uh, Nicobule, um, who wrote anecdotes about uh, Alexander getting drunk. And, <laughs> and that Alexander, the night of his final dinner, performed a scene that he had memorized from Euripides' Andromeda. Now, again, wow. it's not important whether that's true or not. Yeah. What's important is that when someone was telling stories about what Alexander would be doing on his last night, mm-hmm. that's what he'd focus on mm-hmm. in that person's mind. It might be true, but 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 less more more interesting is the cultural place that Andromeda holds, that that's the detail 
that gets preserved. Yeah, like even if you're going to make it up, you still that place still holds the value for it to be the one that you've made up as the thing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And then Lucian, writing in the second century, has this weird story. So he's got this, this, this uh, uh, prose treatise on um, how to write history, hmm. and how to write history begins talking about. Uh, in the same way that Thucydides' history has the account of the plague of Athens, mm. Lucian, a comic writer writing in Rome, or writing in the period t- Roman times, um, is doing a similar sort of thing and says a disease hit the town of Abdera. Now, Abdera is this town in the Eastern Empire. Mm-hmm. It was. Uh, there, there were Abderite jokes. Uh, they were they were the ones that you sort of target. Uh, so we've got a joke book from antiquity that has a whole section on Abderite jokes. So they're already uh, you know, insert your uh, your your favorite or least favorite ethnic identity here. Yeah. That's the role that the Abderites held for at least one joke teller. But so a plague hits uh, Abdera, and people become get a headache they can't sleep and it goes away and there's blood and all these things and he's <laughs> describing it in the same way that he that Thucydides describes the plague but it affected their minds and they all had a yearning for tragedy <laughs> while they were deathly sick and they all begin delivering um poetry <laughs> While yelling, so they're all you know barfing up blood and all these things while delivering <laughs> these lines of verse, and this is meant to be funny. This mm-hmm. is this, oh, I, yeah, I don't believe this I is a historical <laughs> event, but again, Lucian is choosing you know this yearning for tragedy, and in particularly, they would sing the songs from Euripides's Andromeda, wow, including the story of Perseus falling in love, and so. Uh, I, I think uh, he, uh, there, there's a, a, a traveling actor, Archelaus, um, and it was his performance of Andromeda in the hot summer heat that makes everybody get sick. So again, just think about what that story is, is saying, that one, you know, you can go to a play see someone lovesick and get sick yourself, that the fictional worlds represented are somehow contagious and permeable to the theater (laughs) audience. I love that. Um, The fact that madness is associated both with physical illness, but also with a love of poetry. (laughs) And so, you know, Dionysus is Dionysus, right? Like that suits. (laughs) You know, Lord Byron had it right, but uh, I, I, but there's, but it's a fascinating story. This is the story that he begins how to write history with. And again, it's, I'm not saying this is historical. I think he's being funny here, but just the details that he's giving, he gives the name of a traveling actor. That's not going to be an accidental name. That's going to be the name of a prominent traveling actor in the second century mm-hmm. that he knows. The fact that Andromeda is being performed in the repertoire. The story isn't, whoa, and they performed Andromeda. No, this is what make this this is the marker that every the entire city's gone insane, is that they're reciting at the top of their voices lines of Euripides. And we might even think of the story of of the captured 
uh, Athenian sailors um, after the Sicilian expedition who supposedly right. get their freedom by singing songs of Euripides. Yeah. Maybe that's informing this story too, right? But again, just Andromeda has this place of, uh, no, again, not for what's in it really, you know, sure it's a love story but we still don't know what happened in the second half of the play yeah but it holds you know one scene captured the imagination the moment when perseus falls in love with andromeda while he's swinging from the maconade that somebody else is paying for yeah that scene so captured the imagination that the play enters the performance repertoire and whether it's being performed in excerpts with music with extra music <laughs> all that sort of thing we don't know yeah. But we've got hints because we can we can see some indications of scripts. Yeah. Well, uh, I just made to think like just Andromeda generally, like I know it's also, you know, one of the one of the plays that's mentioned in Thesmophoria Adusai. So it, like there's like there's so many different levels that even I kind of had enough connection without even thinking of this like really long tradition of this yeah, yeah, now yeah. lost play. Like it does. It kind of is everywhere. It really is. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's painted on the walls, you know, frescoes in Pompeii mm -hmm. show versions of this story. Are they Euripides' versions? Well, maybe, but they're it's certainly, they're part of the same cultural dialogue mm -hmm. uh, where stories from particular plays get preserved. And yeah. sometimes they're being preserved artistically, laws, paintings, frescoes, terracottas. Sometimes they're being preserved through reperformance. Um, and sometimes they're being preserved just, you know, as uh, written examples, which we might think of as for educational use or because they're useful for pulling quotes in your law court speeches or whatever it is. Those, you know, there's different ways that a play might make it into an afterlife. But what are the filters that allow it to eventually enter the manuscript tradition mm -hmm. and it seems that performance wasn't one of them mm -hmm. performance doesn't get you into the manuscripts it might help you live till the second century yeah CE, but but the cut from that point uh to what makes it into the manuscript tradition let's see menander almost makes it in mm -hmm. but uh iphigenia among the taurians for example was also one of these reperform plays we have it among the alphabetic plays these randomly selected or yeah. accidentally selected plays the eta through kappa uh of the complete works not because they were chosen to be among the ones that mm -hmm. survived mm -hmm. uh, whereas for sophocles and Aeschylus, we've only got the ones that were chosen to mm -hmm. survive we can we can discriminate a little bit looking at the euripides examples and see that Helen and the Iphigenia plays weren't picked. So neither of Ipha Iphigenia were. Okay. No. No. I forgot to recheck that list before I started the Torian. So thank you for yeah. <laughs> yeah. pointing that no, out. No, no worries at all. Yeah. But all, all, all of the, uh, the H I K mm -hmm. plays. So Heracles, Iphigenia, Helen, uh, the two Iphigenias, Kiklops. Yeah. These ones survive accidentally. Was that, None of the, uh, I thought the Heracles one for sure. That's so it, interesting. It, okay. No, it is. Uh -huh. And so exactly. Heracles and yeah. Helen are probably my favorite two extant well, Euripides I mean, plays. Helen is amazing. I had no yeah. idea. And then like, I'll never forget that play. It's so good. It is. <laughs> yeah. I, I forget how I brought it up recently. I don't know why it came up. I think I bring it up when I possibly can, but just like the, 
the Menelaus wearing a fishnet is just like <laughs> I'm gonna live with that forever. You know, it's so good. Um, sorry, go. Ahead. No, I was gonna say we we mentioned just roughly scripts. We've got a yeah. little hints of how scripts work. Oh yeah, um, we know that roles. You know, uh, for tragedies, uh, you had three speaking actors. It was one of the ways that they created a level playing field for competition. And we have this one papyrus. And again, it's, it, the papyrus is from Egypt. Is this representative of everything? Maybe not. But nevertheless, we don't have production materials. So we can only take what scraps we've got. Mm-hmm. But there's this one papyrus, Pioxy 4546. So it was found in Oxyrhynchus. And uh, it's just got this Pioxy number, 4546. Mm-hmm. And it is from Euripides' Alcestis. Mm. Oh. But it's, it, 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 but it's a great one, and it's only Admetus's lines hmm. that survive. We've huh. got the rest of the play. We can tell that there were other bits, but what this is, is this is what the actor yeah. had in his hand. And the actor learned just Admetus's lines and would wait for the other person to stop talking, and then they would talk. <laughs> And and you knew when each speech began, but you didn't write out for everybody, everybody's lines. Yeah. One, that's incredibly expensive. Yeah. Papyrus is expensive. Copying is expensive. So you give the actors. The actors are literate. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's important evidence for literacy. Yeah. You give them their part. And we, we talk about parts uh, using terms from... Elizabethan theater, Jacobean theater, where actors, again, got their part. They got the lines that they say, not the lines that other people say. Mm -hmm. But that seems to have been the case, at least for this production of Alcestis. Um, For other sort of backstage documents, we actually don't have them for theater. They must have existed. Yeah. Um, But we do have them for other performance traditions, particularly for mime. Uh, Ancient mime uh, isn't what we think of, you know, Marcel Marceau, but uh, it's an unmasked performance tradition with small troops. They've still got musical instruments. They can have a couple of people on stage, but it's unmasked and women could perform. Whoa! But yeah, I know it. Whole other podcast. We could talk about that Just some other toss time. That right toss in. that right oh away. Yeah, God. this this was the genre that women could perform. This Whoa. was the dramatic genre that women could perform in. Yeah. But we've got scraps of things like a, a running list. So over the course of a given production, there were these seven different playlets. And they're all named like Friends episodes. Uh, the one about the Goths. <laughs> the one the one with the rain. Um, the one with the sunshine. And so we've got the running list of seven, I think it's seven uh, different little playlets or mimes that are going to be put on, and then a props list. Yeah. And again, if you've worked in the theater, you know backstage there's all sorts of documents that on closing night get scrunched up and thrown away. Yeah. It just happens that it was thrown away in a dump that got excavated 1,600 years later. (laughs) And so we've got a props list. There's also one papyrus that looks like a cue list. So oh. not so it's the lines that the other person's going to say to lead you into your speech. Yeah. And again, this is a different performance tradition, hundreds of years separated from classical Athens. So mm. I'm not pr- suggesting necessarily this exact thing existed in Athens. 
but there would have been documents. Mm -hmm. And the ephemera of theater production, even the written documents that existed backstage, mm -hmm. they're not things that are entering into the manuscript tradition. They're not things that are being saved in the library at the Metro. They're not things that are being kept around. But they're documents that are used. Yeah. Who has them? Who gets a copy of the full play before production? Maybe, you know, this also cuts down on 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 leaks if you only have your own words uh, that you're going to be saying. But it does suggest that the three actors who are splitting all the roles have parts with their lines. They don't have the complete play. I think there's no reason for most of the choristers to have a complete play. Yeah. Plutarch gives us an anecdote about how rehearsals worked um, with uh, Euripides singing a line and then the chorus singing it back. Hmm. Now, again, the point of the anecdote, this is the great thing with anecdotes. They don't need to be true to be useful mm -hmm. for us. Mm -hmm. We can, the point isn't, this is the way Euripides taught. Can you believe it? Euripides taught this way. The point of the anecdote was that he was using a funny musical mode and one of the choristers laughs at him. Mm. So he's doing this call and response and Euripides sings the line using the mixolydian mode and one of the choristers giggles. And Euripides says, how dare you snicker when I <laughs> sing in the mixolydian mode or whatever he sounded like. But all that presumes this sort of call and response trainer training from the didaskalos, the director. That's what yeah. Euripides is celebrated for from the director to the chorus Yeah, that they learn by memory, hearing the music. Choristers aren't being given a script and yeah. choristers don't need to be literate. Yeah. Not everyone in a production needs to be able to read. Yeah. I think the actors do need to be able to read though. Yeah. And so again, there's, there's a reason that some of them are separated and celebrated for one thing. Others are winning actors prizes because yeah. there are different sets of skills. Oh. Okay. I have, I have endless questions, but I also don't want <laughs> to keep you <laughs> too long. Um, I would love to know if, anything maybe not anything because we'll try to limit it um but i just I, I would love to touch upon the actors themselves if we can and just briefly who was and was not allowed to watch the plays because i know that's a question that comes up a lot um so yeah whatever you can tell me in a, a brief period of time while i still have you would be so amazing <laughs> sure uh okay so very quickly yeah uh we honestly don't know uh, all that much about the actors in the original productions. Uh, the actors uh, begin to uh, get a prize also in the 440s. Um, and when the actors' prizes are introduced, is a little bit of uh, a, a thorny scholarly issue, but some actors' prizes begin in the 440s. Some come later for both comedy and tragedy, Lanaya Dionysia. Mm -hmm. Eventually, by the end of the fourth century, there's prizes across the board, but how quickly they all come in, we don't know. Um, we've got individual names. Um, they probably were uh, brought on board to a production in a set of three. Hmm. Um, so you know who it is. You know They know who they're working with. Um, and probably if you won the prize the previous year, you've got the right to get in for free. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not always clear to me that uh, the playwrights get to choose who their actors are. That mm. might be 
one of the allotted features. So um, we've got individual names. Uh, sometimes the names are because of mistakes that they made. We know of one actor who, in the course of Euripides of Orestes in 408, mispronounced oh, yeah. a breathing in one word. It's not even a breathing. It's an elision in one word. And apparently it just made the audience guffaw. And the playwright, the comic playwrights didn't let him off the hook. Aristophanes makes jokes about it. Stratus, another comic playwright, makes jokes about it. And maybe a third one does as well. I'm just not producing who it is. But the cult of the actors start to develop in the 440s, continue through the 5th century. And I think the actors really come into their own um, around 386. Because in 386, at the Dionysia, a new contest gets introduced. And the new contest is putting on old tragedies. Hmm. So in addition to the modern tragedies, new playwrights every year, Mm -hmm. you have an option to put on one of the classics. And Mm -hmm. one of the classics was a play by one of the big three. This helped set the performance repertoire that we talked about in the fourth century. Maybe it didn't happen every year. It happens every year by about 340, I think it is. But in those, but but 386 is the first time we get this sort of state-sponsored old tragedies competition. And that's going to be because the actor wants to play one of the great roles. Yeah. The actor wants to be Helen or wants to be Euripides as Helen. Yeah. And, and I think that's interesting particularly for the people still writing new tragedies. That changes what it is to write a Medea play if elsewhere in the competition, someone's going to maybe be putting on Euripides as Medea. Yeah. So if there's an onus for innovation then. There's an onus for creativity if you're writing new plays, for breaking the mold, for doing wild radical things, which is what we think fourth century tragedy did. But we can see that developing out of pressures from the instantiation of an a classics competition. Yeah. But the plays that make it into the classics competition are Orestes, Andromeda, things like that. They're the ones that are going to be reperformed. Heracles is another one that we know mm. gets re- reperformed. That's so interesting. I just, it's, it's endlessly fascinating, obviously. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> I will try to wrap up. Um, this, yeah. Ha, ha, oh, you want to know about the audience too. If if we can tell, like, so I, the only thing I know is that, like, I know there's just debate about whether any woman was there or if she was there, yeah. was she a quote unquote hetera? But then I have this whole issue with like, okay, who is actually a hetera and who is just a yeah, woman no, in a let's, space? Let, let, let's not, let's not uh, frame it in terms of whether you're a sex worker. Yeah. Like, I, I think that that's not helping. Whether there are women there or not. Mm-hmm. The notional audience of the playwrights is male. Because mm-hmm. it's when Alice. when they address the crowd, they are addressed as if they were jurors, an all male group, or the ecclesia, an all male group. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we break whatever is maintaining any semblance of dramatic illusion, the group address is always to a male group. I mm-hmm. think always to a male group. Maybe there's exceptions. but So the notional audience is male. But I can't believe that there aren't women mm-hmm. in the audience. Um, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. There's articles 
uh, by Jeff Henderson and Tony Podlucky, both of which conclude that there are likely some women in the audience. But it's distinguishing the actual audience composition, where you know you might be bringing your whole family mm-hmm. to the theater, you've brought them into the city, or you know this is how you're entertaining yourself when you're dispossessed of your land because there's a war on, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. If you've got money to spare, you might bring more people, mm-hmm. but it costs more. Mm-hmm. And so not everyone is going to be bringing their wife. Mm-hmm. Not everyone is going to be bringing uh, whatever woman is in their life. I think framing it that way, could women go in groups by themselves? Of course, they probably could. Mm-hmm. We don't hear about that, though. Mm-hmm. Um, we do hear about it in Rome. We know there's an incredible diversity in the audiences of Rome. Mm-hmm. The plays attest to that. So we know what that kind of evidence could look like. Mm-hmm. But we're left with uh, you know, tantalizing hints, again, often from comic playwrights in Aristophanes' Birds. There's a suggestion that uh, uh, women will fly away home after or during a play in order to spend time with their lovers. Mm-hmm. Well, first off, married <laughs> women aren't supposed to have lovers in the normative expectations for civic virtue within mm-hmm. Athens. So it's not, that's really what they're doing. Is the joke that there are women in the, well, no, it, the joke is that they're carrying on while their husbands are staying in the theater. That seems to imply that women could be mm-hmm. in the audience. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't. It's it's it falls short of proof, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, you build up. You know, you you look at all those sorts of hinted at examples. For me, it leads me to believe that there were women in the audience, mm-hmm. but that they're not a prominent group within the audience, um, and that the group is treated as if it's all men mm-hmm. because it's men who are doing the voting. It's mm-hmm. men who are the judges who are used to all male. Uh, engagements maybe the women you know, it's been suggested sometimes that they sit at the back sitting at the back is actually pretty good mm-hmm. viewing you get yeah. to see the top-down view of the course then yeah the uh, sound which, is great <laughs> and so so I, th- I think that we don't want to start assuming well we know that there's sexism happening in Athens. i'm not trying to deny that <laughs> really <laughs> whole other yeah but uh but but we don't need to just sort of import our own way of enacting sexism mm-hmm. onto the Athenians. Yeah. <laughs> they found their own ways to be sexist. Yeah. They were really uh, good at it. <laughs> they really were. And they worked hard at it. Um, <laughs> but w- that being the case, mm-hmm. that's not saying one way or the other whether mm-hmm. women were in the audience. So so yeah. I, I, I don't know. My gut is that they were there, just not in great numbers. Yeah. No, I'm th- honestly, that's that's a great way of just like looking at the the possibilities which frankly is really what i wanted to hear yeah. because i've just i've read things of, of this kind of broad statement of like no women and i'm like that seems impossible <laughs> unlikely like ridiculous like i know athens was absurd but like come on so yeah. i'm yeah i'm glad to hear that's kind of like a a notion of just like hey you know why say definitely not like 
it, it, I, this came up in a conversation I had recently where the idea of saying that something absolutely did not happen based on ancient evidence seems utterly absurd broadly. Like Because we have so little happen. evidence yeah. in any case. You can't prove <laughs> yeah. a negative. Um, yeah. One other piece of evidence mm. that is sort of relevant, I guess, is Aristophanes' Ecclesia Zeusai, in which women sneak into the Ecclesia. Mm-hmm. They sneak into the assembly, which was an all-male space. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, do we have plays of women sneaking into the theater? We don't know of any. If we did, that would be evidence that women weren't normally allowed. Mm-hmm. We do, though, have lost comedies. We've got the Proagone. What are the roles of women in the Proagone that we talked about? The, mm-hmm. the, the, the preview festival. Were there women there? What, you know, what, what, who knows? Um, nobody is the answer to that rhetorical <laughs> question. Um, but there's also uh, a comedy of Aristophanes, uh, when, women setting up tents or women setting up the skene, the oh, stage building. Yeah. That could be a woman sneaking into the festival. If you wanted yeah. to make an exclusion of women from theater, I'd look at that play and start making up a plot right. that has them sneaking in. But I, I don't think that's what the evidence shows. Yeah, yeah, well, I like that. And Aristophanes said some wild stuff, so you know, he, who, who knows ne- what? You never know. <laughs> but I hope that's useful for you. I hope oh that's, my God. What, that's what you wanted. Yeah, like absolutely. This is. I mean, I knew this conversation was going to be great, uh, but no, <laughs> so so good. No, uh, yeah, every question it was answered in great detail. Um, so thank you so much. This was so much fun um i don't know if you want to share anything with my listeners in terms of reading more or finding more anything of that type <laughs> it's fine if not too. <laughs> you know <laughs> there, there there's a lot of really great work being done particularly on uh the 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 dean theaters and uh the additional competitions both in attica and in the wider Mediterranean, mm-hmm. um, the work of Peter Wilson and Eric Chapo, CSAPO, um, they write together and they've got some fantastic stuff uh, that's, that's really opening up new worlds for uh, understanding the place that theater had, Greek theater yeah. had, Athenian theater had in the wider Mediterranean. Oh, that's so exciting. Well, I'm going to go look up those names anyway. So that's yeah. wonderful. There we are. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me again. This was like truly so much fun. <laughs> it's great talking with you. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, nerds, thank you so much for listening. As always, I won't try to say more today. It was a joy of a conversation. Thank you to Toph um, for speaking to me. And uh, it was just absolutely wonderful. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, better known as the assistant producer. Laura Smith is now the production assistant and audio engineer. She's making my life easier with those conversations, I will tell you. The podcast is part of the iHeart Podcast Network. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Thank you all. As always, you are the best. I am Liv and I love this shit.
right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.